four weeks, we're doing morning and evening in the, the book of Proverbs. So you should have a booklet that looks like this. We've got two sizes, depending on one's eyesight. So if you haven't got one of those, just signal, and my colleagues here will, uh, will pass one to you. And we're in the section on work, which is on page six, and all our readings will be from uh, this booklet. Also, we're going to do something else that's a bit different tonight, which is have a text a question. Ben, I don't know if that can go up on the screen soon. The guys can put that up there. So basically, we're going to have an opportunity for Q&A for questions and answers or questions and response after the sermon. And some of you may be bold enough just to sort of put your hand up. We might even give you the microphone and you can just ask a question. But if you'd rather not do that, you can actually text a question to this phone number which is uh, coming up, and hopefully I will get that question by the end of the song, and then we'll come back. Now, we may have no questions, we may have ten, we will see, but as, they, as the sermon goes along, something might occur to you. I can't promise you it'll be a great answer, but it'll be some kind of response. So let's uh, start here. Uh, let me ask you a question. What will you be doing this time tomorrow? In fact, what will you be doing tomorrow morning at about 9.30 a.m.? And how do you feel about it? A few people looking mildly anxious, one or two verging into panic, one person's about to assume the fetal position and start rocking in the corner. People who are retired are smiling smugly, looking serene, because of course, tomorrow morning, many of us will be doing some kind of work and, importantly, we need to say at the start, work takes many forms. It may be going to a job that pays money, or it may be studying something, or it may be running a home and raising children. They're all work, biblically. Some time ago, a thread went round on the social media, uh, which said, five jobs I've had, or, or all the jobs I've had, and it was great fun to find out what sort of weird and wonderful work people had done in the course of their lives. So let me share my work history with you in order. Schoolboy, dog walker, paperboy, shop assistant, gardener, industrial temp, theme park ride operator, civil servant, student, warehouse porter, bookseller, telephone sales executive, marketer, headhunter, seminary student, teaching assistant, pastor. I wonder what yours would look like. As we think about our work, we immediately can see that it has a sort of spectrum that at one end is grindingly boring, and at the other end could be absorbingly interesting, and maybe lots and lots of different places on that spectrum. But how are we supposed to view those many hours that we will invest uh, in and that will fill our lives from Monday to Saturday. What does the Bible say about work? And sometimes churches can kind of function as if work barely exists. And you know, it's very easy for pastors to sort of focus on the church and its ministries and its meetings, because of course that's what absorbs m my life most of the time. But the church is not the building, it's the people. And most of the people spend much of their time in some kind of work. How are we supposed to view it? Does God care about it? Or is work a sort of necessary evil that fills the gap 
between the weekends. Now, the Bible actually has a great deal to say about work. Work does matter to God. And serious Christians can actually fall into a very interesting error. We can uh, think or assume that the only work that really matters is ministry. And by that, we tend to think of church staff, evangelists, church planters, pastors, Bible translators, missionaries, and those sort of people. And so what happens is we can start to function with a sort of two-tier Christianity, where a small minority who are doing ministry work are actually doing something of eternal value, and everyone else's work is basically trivial. It's just paying the bills. And that's actually a serious error biblically, and it leads us to some serious problems. It's a very unbiblical view of our work. And so tonight I want us to turn to the Scriptures to seek God's wisdom about work And in our booklets, uh, we're here on page six. Now, as you can see, I've selected a range of proverbs on a range of topics. And what we find, actually, is that every time we open a topic in proverbs, we're really just opening a door. And that door leads to a corridor. And as you're going down it, you realize there's other doors here. We could have gone down more and more corridors. And there's lots more to say uh, about work. But this is a start. And remember that one of the greatest Christians of the 20th century, Billy Graham, resolved to read a chapter of Proverbs every day for 31 days a month on rotation because he wanted to be wise. So if you want to be a profound person, to live well in God's word, if you want our community to flourish, let's listen to the wisdom of Proverbs. First proverb here is uh, in under number one, dignity. We learn that uh, God work has God-given dignity, and here is Proverbs 27, verse 18. The one who guards a fig tree will eat its fruit, and whoever protects their master will be honored. Now, just think about the two jobs that are mentioned here. Uh, Hands up if you've ever done guarding a fig tree as a paid occupation. (laughs) It doesn't sound like a particularly skilled job, does it? Guarding a fig tree? I don't know who you'd be guarding it from. Maybe squirrels? (laughs) or or, uh, people who steal figs, but guarding a fig tree, and whoever does that is going to uh, eat its fruit, and somebody who protects their master. Both of these jobs will have some benefits that accrue to them. The one that guards the fig tree will eat fresh fruit, and figs are very good for you, you know. And the second person will be honored. What's this proverb actually saying? It's saying that all work done well has dignity. All work done well has dignity. Guarding a fig tree, protecting a master, these are not tasks that bring fame and glory. They're not the kinds of jobs aspirational parents want for their highly educated offspring. But they are a cause for honor. In other words, all work matters to God, whatever it is. And the roots of this thinking go down deep into the earliest parts of the Bible. So I've gone out of Proverbs for the second quotations to the book of Genesis because that's where our thinking about work begins. Here's a couple of quotes from Genesis 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. 
And then from Genesis 2:15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, this is extraordinary in the ancient world. In the creation stories of the ancient world, in the Near East, there were stories of gods, and there were always a plural number of gods, and one thing these gods never did was any serious work, because work was considered an inferior pursuit for the lower orders, something to be avoided at all costs. So in the the creation stories of every other religion of that time, the gods create humans to do the, the work get their hands dirty, while the gods devoted themselves to leisure. And that was the uniform view of the ancient world, including a few thousand years later, the time of Jesus and his disciples, the the Greek and Roman world. If you were wealthy, you wouldn't do a stitch of work. You had slaves and servants for that. But look at the reality of the living God here, the true God. He works. In Genesis, he is hard at it for six days and rests on the seventh. God creates the working week, and God is a worker. This is radical. And notice that when God created human beings, he intended work for us. This isn't something that comes after the fall. Before sin even entered the world, the man was made to work the Garden of Eden and take care of it. So the first ever job description was to work and take care of a garden. We might say that Adam was a kind of small-holding farmer. Now, Genesis 3, as you know, teaches that work has been deeply affected by our first parents' sin. We now eat our food by the sweat of our brow, and the ground is cursed with thorns and thistles. And that's a very vivid way of saying work is difficult. It's blighted. It's challenging. It's stressful. Sweat. Thorns and thistles and oh, the grief of work. But that doesn't take away from the fact, one bit, that we were made to work, that God works, and that work has dignity. So, your work matters to God, whatever it is. Question for reflection. Do you tend to undervalue some kinds of work compared to others? Do you despise your own work or that of other people because it's low paid or unskilled? You actually shouldn't because all work matters to God because all work is part of loving our neighbor. Martin Luther, the German reformer, spoke very powerfully about work. Here's a quote from from Luther. God gives us grace, not so that we can walk all over it as the world does, but because God takes an interest in all that we do to our neighbors, good and bad, as though we were doing it to God. If only everyone would regard his service to his neighbors as service to God, the whole world would be filled with worship. Listen to what he says about workers. A servant in the stable, a maid in the kitchen, a child in school, these are merely God's workers, and God's servants, if they with diligence do what their father and mother or lord and lady of the household gives them to do. Thus would every house be filled with worship. Indeed, every house would be a true church in which nothing other than worship was practiced. Luther even described work 
our work as being like God's hands and feet in the world. Now, God doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes in the world, but he does allow us to be his agents through our work. So your work is dignified and it is part of loving your neighbor. So whatever it is, our work is worthy of our finest efforts and our most diligent application and of our energy. Look at the next section. Point two, three proverbs about energy. Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in forced labor. All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. The appetite of laborers works for them. Their hunger drives them on. I'm going to look at these three texts in reverse order. So that third one, chapter 16, verse 26, the appetite of laborers works for them. Their hunger drives them on. And it's saying at one level, we simply need to work in order to eat. Hard work is driven by the need to survive. For most people in most of the world, in most of history, if you didn't work, you wouldn't eat. And survival is a pretty good reason to get a job, isn't it? And as Christians, we should take the opportunity to work seriously. If, now, if you're unable to do so because of ill health or a stage of life or your role as a carer or being just unable to find work, then we're really fortunate to have a, a welfare state in this country. But a Christian ought not to see being on a job seeker's allowance as an alternative career path. It is called job seeker's allowance for a reason and it's intended as a short-term measure. The appetite of laborers works for them. Secondly, chapter 14, verse 23, warns us about the difference between hard work and mere talk. Hard work brings profit. Mere talk leads only to poverty. Generally speaking, hard work will lead to benefits, to prosperity, bring some profit. And that's how most people achieve greater prosperity, by applying themselves. There's nothing wrong with wealth. Some of the most godly, greatest saints, people of faith in the Bible were wealthy. Abraham, Job, David, Solomon, Lydia, they're all rich people. The question is not about rich or poor, but about what we do with our money and what we trust in. But we notice here that mere talk doesn't make money. Some people are prone to dreaming dreams, having big ideas, doing lots of research, coming up with loads of plans and schemes that they might do one day, but in the end they've done nothing. They have achieved nothing because it was basically procrastination. And I know because I'm pretty similar to that. Mere talk won't get you anywhere. Thirdly, chapter 12 verse 24 tells us what hard work looks like. It is Diligent, it says here, diligent hands will rule. And diligent hands means a person who is careful and conscientious about their work. They take care to do it well, whatever it is. Now this kind of person is a delight to work with or to work for. If they say they're going to do something, they don't need to be constantly reminded. They make sure it gets done. They think around the task, they don't just do the task, but they think not just to do the minimum, but the whole job and to do it really well. They tend to be on time if they can and try and be on budget. They clear up after themselves. They take a job and they do it better than it was done before. Diligent hands, 
And according to Proverbs, these people will rule, and that means they succeed to greater responsibility. And of course, we see that in the workplace, don't we? People who are diligent often end up uh, in some position of greater responsibility because they're trustworthy. Others will trust the diligent with greater and greater responsibility. Remember Joseph in the Bible? He was uh, a son, a shepherd boy. His brothers uh, threw him in a well and he ended up going from shepherd to running a household to running a jail to running the whole of Egypt because he was diligent. He was given more responsibility. He ruled. Now the opposite of that is a person who isn't diligent. Laziness ends in forced labor. That's a really grim picture. No one wants to be in forced labor. This is someone who doesn't take initiative. They don't apply themselves. Whatever they do, they don't really care about it. So they end up doing work that they didn't want to do. So here's a question to reflect. Would those who work with you say that you are diligent? Now that question leads us to the next piece of wisdom about work, which is that we need to be realistic. There's a reality out there, and we have to live in it. Christians can be so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly use. Some Christians, because of their passion for Jesus and desire to share the gospel, have actually become irritating to their employers because they didn't do what they were being paid to do. We must take care to be realistic. And Proverbs talks about reality. Look at the first one there under section three. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds, for riches do not endure forever, and a crown is not secure for all generations. I found a book in a charity shop some years ago, and I read it with growing delight. The book is called the fat of the land, the fat of the land. And it's a true story of a couple called John and Sally Seymour. Uh, John was a journalist, but in the late 1950s, they decided that they were going to try and live off the land and become self-sufficient. And they kind of started a movement which uh, ended up in the TV show, The Good Life, that was set in Surbiton. Living off the land. They tried to grow all their own food and live off five acres of land that they'd leased. And the book actually is, is really fascinating. Because they start off with ducks, geese, and chickens, and some crops, and then they decide to branch out to pigs, and eventually a cow. They planted many varieties of crops, and they see some of them succeed, and others fail dreadfully, and it's all about the learning process. And what you realize as the story goes on is how success in such an endeavor is intimately related to knowing what's going on. To really have your ear to the ground. They had to spot even what the animals were eating and whether they were healthy. Now if a farmer doesn't pay close attention to his flocks and herds, he may miss crucial signs that things are going wrong. Whole herds can be devastated by disease. Whole crops can be ruined. Proverbs says, be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention. Now, of course, the principle there goes much wider than farming. Do we know what's going on in our work? Are you aware what's going on inside the, 
the organization and outside in the sphere in which it operates. Now, what might make us miss what's going on? We can neglect the details because we're a bit bored or because we become complacent. We can be inattentive. That means we're never 100% focused on anything. We're just sort of flitting from one thing to the next. My, I have a coach I meet with for an hour every fortnight, and he's said several times, wherever you are, be there 100%. So if you're in a meeting, be in that meeting 100%, not kind of 80% and 20% looking on your phone. And if you're in a one-to-one -one with somebody, be there 100%. They have 100% of your attention. Because it's the only way we can be sure to know. We can fail to keep up with the changing marketplace or the operating environment. And that may be because we're not really present and listening when we're with other people. Or we can over-delegate. Those of you who have management responsibilities, you, can, you have to delegate, you should, but you can also over-delegate and not manage people properly. And the warning for us is in verse 24, riches don't endure forever. Our wealth, our, our prosperity won't simply endure. We have to stay on the ball. Even a crown is not secure for all generations. So let's be realistic. And the next verse draws attention to one aspect of work that we neglect at our peril, which is recruitment and I would say that because I spent five years in recruitment but it is a very important aspect of work look at chapter 26 verse 10 like an archer who wounds at random is one who hires a fool or any passerby <laughs> that could be the logo for a, for a headhunting business uh, now, in this culture, remember that the archer in the army, army would have been a key person in warfare. In fact, archery was winning battles even in our own history as, as, as short a time ago as maybe four or five hundred years. Uh, Agincourt was won by English archers. The advanced technology of the bow could be decisive because you can kill people who are a long way off. But look at the archer that is in this team. He wounds people at random. We were in a uh, school play at St. Paul's Church of England Primary. At the end of term, my youngest son was, was starring as the narrator, and it was all based on Robin Hood. And wonderful, hilarious comedy play. But the archer in that play was a, an archer who basically would draw his, arch, his bow, fire the arrow, and it would ping around and hit anyone at random. And that's what this is saying. That's what it means to hire somebody who's a fool or just a random person. Now, a fool, I mentioned this this morning, let me say it again. A fool in Proverbs is not someone who's unintelligent, but someone who is morally deficient and who won't listen to wisdom. The fool is wise in their own eyes and full of pride. Therefore, they constantly make bad decisions that create chaos, but it is impossible to correct them because they always think they're right. They blunder through life, blaming other people. And so if you hire a fool, if you're in a position to employ people and you hire a fool, it's like you're waiting for someone to shoot you with an arrow. Now look, there's a fool inside every one of us. We're all a mixture of wisdom and folly. That's why we need the cool voice of Proverbs 
to become profound people, but it would be madness to hire a fool, wouldn't it? Especially, like it would just be like mad to hire someone who just happened to be walking past the building. Bring them in and give them the job. So if you're involved in recruiting and hiring people on, on any, in any type of organization, uh, Proverbs would advise patience and caution and rigor in the process. The pressures and the demands of work can lead us to panic hiring. But if you marry in haste, you will repent at leisure. And that goes for hiring people as well. Look, if you only take references that the candidate gave you, you're only going to hear good things about the candidate, aren't you? Because they're only going to give you reference referees who, are going to, who like them. Sometimes we have to dig a bit deeper. We need to find the whole truth. We need to take our time. And there are people out there who know how to interview well. They can perform well in the interview, but they actually distort the reality of what they've achieved in the past. When I was a headhunter, they used to talk about a spectrum that people uh, who, who claimed on their CV they'd done something. You, you could actually say, well, either uh, he, he, he did it, he made it happen, or he helped it make it happen, or he was aware it was happening, or he didn't actually know it was happening, but took some credit for it later on. We, had to, we were trained to find out which part of that spectrum did the, the, the candidate fit onto. People are good at blagging. So, friends, are we careful and diligent in our work? What would your boss say? Are there some areas of work that, as you think about it now, you're doing carelessly? You can change now and resolve to be different this week. Because finally, how we work is a matter of integrity. Look at point four, integrity. Work is a matter of integrity, and it's no surprise that integrity matters to God. Proverbs 11, verse 1. The Lord detests dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with him. A few years ago, our family enjoyed a lovely three-week holiday in southern Spain. I have to say I didn't do much physical exercise during those days. I did waddle from the car to the beach or from the apartment to the swimming pool. I exercised my arms by lifting crisps and chips to my mouth and working on the occasional cold beer. When we returned home after that three weeks of that regime, I stood on the scales and took a deep breath. I was nervous as to see what the result would be. And this was a sophisticated form of digital scales that could be programmed with the age and gender of every member of the family. Person one, person two, person blah, 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 blah. And as I looked down at the scales, to my delight, it appeared that somehow, magically, I had lost seven pounds during that holiday. Half a stone. And that was against the all the other evidence, by the way. The evidence of my shorts, the evidence of the mirror, the evidence from my wife. The scale said it, half a stone lighter. But you know what? It turned out those digital scales had lied. <laughs> they lied to me. For some reason, if I'd been an 18-year-old, I would have weighed less. I still to this day don't understand it. But when I put it back to 50, the truth was there. Now... 
Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke describes how in the ancient world, in the marketplace, weights were stones that were carved into shapes with a flat base, and they would have a carving on them that was easy to recognize, uh, like a turtle or something. And you would, these would be piled in measures on the scales to weigh what was being bought against the actual weight in the marketplace. And the weight was, was inscribed with a standard format. And the purchaser, if you were a buyer in the marketplace, you could check that they was, these are the right weights that are current among the mar- merchants. But a tricky trader could carry some fake weights in his wallet or his pouch. He could carry a weight that looked like it was a certain measurement, but in fact it was extra heavy for purchase. Or some other weights that were overly light for selling. What does this mean? It's a way of cheating the buyer. Dishonest scales. You put the thing on it and it sort of goes like that. Now dishonest merchants outwardly cheat their neighbors And inwardly, they deny God. They think, I can get away with it. Nobody knows. But God knows. And the principle, of course, goes much wider. Dishonest scales refers to any dishonest work practice or practices in business that are shady, such as misrepresenting products or services to customers misleading clients about the number of hours that have been worked and billed, or the services that were actually rendered, or misleading your boss or your employer about how much time you've actually spent on something. For those in education, teachers may cheat the system by helping students more than they should. Someone was telling me recently about an incident years ago where a tutor called some students one by one into a room and gave them the exam questions so that that tutor's class would do really well. And it also refers students students here, those of you in education, to practices such as plagiarism or intellectual theft, passing off someone else's ideas and work as your own, cheating in exams, or nowadays using AI, like ChatGPT, to write an essay. Such practices are rife in every generation. Dishonest scales. The Lord hates them. And these temptations are everywhere. So let me ask again for reflection. Where in your work are you tempted or under pressure to be dishonest? The next proverb says, food gained by fraud tastes sweet, but one ends up with a mouth full of gravel. It's a very vivid warning here. In the short term, you may gain something by lying, but that gain is short-lived. Stolen food tastes sweet at first, but in the end you have a mouthful of gravel, and that really doesn't taste so good. Doesn't satisfy, doesn't nurture, leaves a bad taste in the mouth from a guilty conscience. Even if no one else knows, you know you cheated, and God knows too. So let me ask again, is there something in your work that needs to be put right so that you are using honest scales? Final two proverbs here uh, seem to be talking about two opposite things. The first one says, a tyrannical ruler practices extortion, but one who hates ill-gotten gain will enjoy a long reign. And then, 
the stingy are eager to get rich and are unaware that poverty awaits them. These two things look opposite. One of them is a person who is practicing extortion. They're actually, they're actively extorting money from others. And the Bible has a lot to say about this, especially when the powerful people screw down the poor and those further down the pecking order in order to extract more from them. The poor tend to be exploited because they are vulnerable. They lack protection. They don't have the resources to defend themselves. Studies have shown that the the people who pay the highest prices for a new car in America are single black women. Because the tradesmen will just charge them what they can. And they're the most vulnerable group. So the poorer you are, ironically, you can end up paying more. And it is also true that the very rich in this country pay less tax than those who have an ordinary job because they know how to avoid it. A tyrant practices extortion. A tyrant, a dictator. The other person looks opposite. This is, you remember Ebenezer Scrooge? They're stingy. They're stingy. They're eager to get rich. They never, if you go out for coffee with them, they'll never pick up the tab for that coffee. They, they never step forward and pay for something. They never buy a round. They're counting the pennies, eager to become rich. Some of the most wealthy people I've known have actually been quite stingy. Now, what is the thing that unites the extorter and the stingy person? Here's the common theme. Both of them have let money and the desire to be rich distort their behavior so that they forgot to love the neighbor. They use their neighbor in the desire to feed themselves rather than using their resources to serve the neighbor. You see, we have been given work by God, this dignified endeavor to love our neighbors, the the great command, and to provide for those around us, provide for those in need. But we can use our work, our, our resources, just to serve self for our own needs, our own enjoyment, our own advancement. And the contrast here is that the tyrannical ruler practices extortion, but the one who hates ill-gotten gain will enjoy a long reign. In God's economy, such a person is blessed with long life and great influence. So, question. If your work is leading you to greater prosperity... Are you becoming more generous or less generous with what God has given you? Work's dignity, its energy, its reality, its integrity. But as we close, let's just take our eyes off our work and think about someone else for a moment. Let's have a look at the CV of Jesus Christ. His first job was as the agent of creation. John 1 says that through Jesus, God made all things. God made all things through him. He was, you might say, the ultimate builder. And then he took a considerable pay cut. His second job was to be a carpenter, a skilled tradesman. Jesus would have had a good primary education but not have gone as far as high school. And then he would have learned a trade from his earthly father, Joseph. 
Some scholars think that it would have been broader than, than simply working with wood, but also include things like stonework and be a general handyman. And as a teenager, the Lord Jesus Christ followed Joseph around and learned his trade. Jesus would have had working man's hands. You look at Paul rising his hands. These guys, amazing strong hands. Jesus worked at hard at a trade until he was 30 years old. Now what must his workmanship have been like? This job was involved in putting people's houses right. And he's been doing that ever since. His next job was as a teacher. An itinerant ministry, he traveled from place to place, preaching and teaching. And as part of his work, he recruited a band of potential leaders and he trained them on the job, just as he'd followed Joseph. He also, as you know, pastored people, worked wonders and healed. But his next work was really most significant because his greatest job was to die on a cross. Jesus regarded it as his life's work. And on the cross, as he endured the greatest pain and shame and abandonment, he cried out eventually a business term, it is finished. It's paid. It's a term you would use to say that this has been paid in full. He had finished the work that he'd come to do because in his cross work, Jesus was redeeming a people that no one could number. A people that's drawn from every conceivable language group, ethnic group, nationality, tribe. And Jesus was saving them all, this people that will number billions. And his next job, we might say, was a well-deserved promotion. He rose and ascended to reign in the place of power at the right hand of the Father. And he reigns as Messiah and king. That is the career of Jesus Christ. He was faithful in every job he did. So when you're bored this week in your work, or you're tempted to cut corners, shade the truth, trick the scales, or you're tempted just to waste time on the job and go on the internet or be lazy, can I ask you to think about the work of your Savior? His work. What he endured for you. What he finished to bring you home. Paul teaches the, uh, the church in, in the New Testament about work by comparing it with the work of Jesus. This is how he uh, speaks. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ, as if he was your boss. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, if you're a boss, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Let's pray.